Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Generic Podcast. We have a great episode for today. We have Karen Laranaga. If you're not familiar with any of her work, she is the author of the Soul Searchers Mystery Books, Hide and Seek, it's a Christmas horror story, Dread Softly, which is a pretty cool collection of short stories, and much more. Uh, if you'd like to find out more information on her, you can go ahead and check out her Goodreads page or her Instagram, which I will leave down below in the description with a whole bunch of other good stuff from this episode. Just as a reminder to everybody who has been enjoying this show for quite a while, if you'd like to pitch in and help out making this show even better, you can head on over to anchor.fm slash generic and set up a monthly kind of patronage. Uh, it's either $1, $5, a $10 a month. Uh, all that money would be going towards making this podcast production uh, more enjoyable. So different kinds of music, maybe some sound effects. I have a whole bunch of other ideas of things that I want to do with this show as well. So uh, without wasting any more of your time, let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Generic Podcast. We talk about everything horror, science fiction, and sometimes fantasy. everyone welcome to another episode of the generic podcast today we have Curran Larinaga on the podcast and I'm so happy to have you here you got so much going on uh thanks for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me I've been excited all week about this oh yeah I was, I was listening um to some of the the different um podcasts that are out there and I was thinking I was just like man I was like I need to get I need to get more of like a range. And so I, I got this email um, from Timber Ghost Press and your new novel that is coming out um, was it in January, I believe, right? Yep, January 3rd. Yeah. And so um, I was like, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll read that and reach out and see if you wanted to come on the show. And here you are. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I guess like before we get into everything, um, kind of like let us know like um like what led you to horror and writing horror and I guess just writing in general because you have you're kind of like a very broad spectrum writer with all the different kinds of things that you got going on yeah um I guess yeah that's a that's like the question that you'd think that eventually you'd have an answer for (laughs) (laughs) like what why did you start writing and I'm always like oh no what did I say last time (laughs) Um, but I, yeah, I remember wanting to write since forever when I was a kid. Um, my parents taught me to read really early because they're both big readers. And I think that they didn't want to have to stop reading what they wanted to read me something that they weren't actually very interested in. <laughs> so they taught me how to read. 
Um, and then I started writing stories and my mom would type them up on our old, old word processor and print them out for me. And I was like, oh, it's a book. It's like a single eight and a half by 11 page, but I'm like, this yeah. is my book. Um, and they both kind of got me into horror pretty young too. My dad loved horror movies. He still does, but he doesn't watch them very much anymore. Um, so he would rent like really silly i guess like when i watch them as an adult i'm like this is not scary but as a child he brought home the movie house in like the late 80s <laughs> and i watched it when i was like five and it scared the crap out of me um because i'm still to this day really nervous about medicine cabinets that have a mirror on the front because in house he like busts through that and there's like a portal to the other dimension on the other side and I've been nervous about it ever since and then I watched it as an adult and it's a horror comedy with the right. worst makeup that you've ever seen like it's hilariously bad and it, they meant it that way like they intended it to be super campy but as a kid you can't tell the difference between yeah. comedy horror and straight up horror so but I got really addicted to that feeling of being scared. So I like, you know, from the beginning, liked watching scary movies, even though I knew I'd pay the price later and be terrified at night. I still liked that feeling in the moment of watching the movie, kind yeah. of like eating an entire chocolate cake. And you're like, I'm going to pay later for this so hard. <laughs> and then my mom started getting me lots of different kinds of books. She bought me like Goosebumps books. Wait Till Helen Comes by Madeline Kahn. Just a lot of books that kept feeding that joy of being scared. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, was, I was born in the mid eighties. So um, you can probably share a lot of these experiences I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> but when I was little, the scary stories to tell in the dark were really, really big. Oh, and yes. a lot of them were intended to be read aloud. And so, you'd read them aloud and scare your friends with like, it's sort of like lull you with the speech pattern. And then there'd be like a big boo at the end. And so we, me and a friend of mine would read them aloud to each other and I loved scaring him. So mm. I think all those roots made me want to write scary stories and scare other people. So I think that's, yeah, that's how I got here. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was you know just looking into your background and the kinds of things that you have accomplished over the years and some of the things that you have worked on so you have and you could correct me if I'm wrong but you have a, a degree in anthropology is that yeah okay yeah so are there and this, this is a pretty interesting thing to think about because I, I know there are a lot of anthropologists who write a lot that work mm -hmm. in different genres and I was wondering if in any of the writing that you do, are there any kind of anthropo uh, anthropological, let's get that one right, Anthropolo <laughs> anthropological um, lenses that you kind of utilize while you're getting into writing or researching different kinds of writing that you're going to do? Yeah, I think the biggest connection is that I like folklore a lot and I like to pull in folklore into my stories or or write stories that are like explicitly inspired by folklore, like Basque folklore. That's pretty universal. All cultures have some form of folklore and most of them, the folklore is pretty scary. Like yeah. a lot of it I think is cautionary tales. Don't go wandering around at night, bad stuff happens. <laughs> and we will illustrate this by telling you about, you know, demons that eat you at night <laughs> if you're out after dark. Um, so I definitely pull that in, but 
honestly, I, I feel like it was the other way around. The reason I chose anthropology as my degree is because I'm very bad at math <laughs> and I don't like multiple choice exams. So yeah. I discovered through lots of like probing and testing classes that every anthropology exam was blue book and all the questions are pretty subjective so you could like write a three-page essay you know looking at what the purpose of something might have been in cultural anthropology and there weren't really any wrong answers as long as you pulled from the data available and extrapolated some type of like reasonable hypothesis um so that made college pretty enjoyable for me so it was Mm, yeah so I think that really writing is what fed into that and I definitely enjoyed learning about other cultures and languages and things like that is there like a, a certain uh I guess I, I don't want to say like myth or or, or mythoi but like is there a certain I, I guess maybe like a certain region right because that's more um a broader um collective of uh myths and legends that kind of like tantalize your senses like you you hear about like somebody writing or or making a movie about like a certain myth and you're like Ooh, yeah i want to check that one out well regionally <laughs> i'm basque so basque folklore it's pretty exciting to me and then that kind of bleeds out into spain and france since the basque country is in both places mm -hmm. um and a lot of basque folklore is like pretty twisted <laughs> so i definitely love those i get really excited if someone has created something based on basque folklore there's a horror movie on netflix called aramentari and i recommend it to everyone because it's great number one it's so much fun but it plays on this old basque folk tale of a blacksmith who traps the devil in his house and mm. like keeps him there by using all these traditional forms of trickery like making the devil count chickpeas or garbanzo bees because that'll keep okay. him occupied and he can't get away <laughs> um so for sure i i get excited if there's some basque folklore that i can experience from someone else or chew on but there's not a ton so i definitely enjoy any type of folklore about supernatural entities that mm -hmm. serve some type of a as like a warning or a protection to keep people away from something or to keep people from doing a certain activity yeah i really enjoy that <laughs> so you you had mentioned that you like before the show here uh you had mentioned that you do or you did and you're thinking about bringing it back which i think you should sounds great <laughs> um you do a a horror podcast where you're talking about different kinds of movies and um, different kinds of films that you and one of your friends have seen and out of i guess either out of those films or films that you saw growing up are there any of those that have really just inspired, I guess, either the way that you do your storytelling or any stories that kind of meld into, I guess, your toolbox of like where you're going to be drawing your stories from? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. I think that definitely my favorites tend to be supernatural horror. And so that's what I write about, like, you know, ghosts and monsters. I used to watch like a lot of slashers, but mm. I don't know if like I've just changed or if they have changed, but I'm not as into like the Nightmare on Elm Street style. And those, you know, have a big supernatural element, but at the end of the day, they're about, you know, a supernatural being stabbing. <laughs> so yeah, for sure, supernatural ones, the original Poltergeist movie, like, oh, okay. yeah, scared yeah. me so much as a kid. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that one killed me. I remember laying in bed at night and my parents had gotten my brother and I a really, really small TV that was on our dresser. We shared a bedroom and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was staring at the TV convinced that it was going to just turn itself on and swallow <laughs> me into it, obviously. So I talked myself up. I was like, okay, we're going to get up out of bed. We're going to walk past that TV and we're going to go like climb into mom and dad's bed where it's safe. And so I spent forever talking myself up and I finally do it. And I get up there next to the TV and it turned itself on and I screamed. <laughs> and then I woke up in bed again and I was like looking at the TV and I was like, crap, I just like talked myself into leaving and it was a dream and I have to do it all over again. <laughs> so uh, I think a lot of that still feeds into me a lot, just like the like the fear that something supernatural is about to happen and that that's that anticipation and that dread is so much worse than when the thing does happen as far as <laughs> me watching a movie. Like, do you watch any James Wan movies, like the Insidious movies? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love those so much because he does such a good job of like panning the shot back and forth so that he's showing you something that's kind of weird and then pans away from it and then goes back and nothing's happening and I'm just waiting for the thing to happen and <laughs> when it finally does the payoff is amazing so I think it's one of the the interesting things about that subgenre it's, it's probably it's probably one of my more favorite genres as well and I think a lot of that as well has to be probably because of the, the background that I have like growing up in a, in a Christian family so it's like you know everyone is always just like oh you're trying to pay attention to those things and I was like tell me more <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. but it's like going back you know it's like you're sitting there and you, and you you think about these movies sometimes that's like you haven't seen in forever and you have that I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's so much of, of a nostalgia factor but it's like it's that like kind of looming dread that you've just associated with that movie mm -hmm. and then like some of the movies that I've gone back and 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 watched either that I wasn't allowed to watch as a child or that <laughs> I have like seen parts of and then I was like oh it's like as a kid you're like that's freaking terrifying you know and yeah then, like, like you're saying you know you go back and, and it's like you look at these things and it's just like man like sometimes you know it is meant to be silly you know but then it's like mm -hmm. even if you look at some of like the um like the freddy movies or like that in front of the uh, night nightmare on elm street films um i think it's like the first one where like he he's got like the super long arms or whatever and he's like walking down the the alley and, he, and he's chasing the the uh the, the main girl in, in her dreams and everything you're like, uh -huh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come get you and he's got these like <laughs> giant arms and like you can tell it's probably it's just like gotta be somebody with like some strings and like following him along with these <laughs> you know it's just so ridiculous um and you're looking at that stuff as a kid and you're just like, oh no yeah <laughs> you know like you get it, it it's it's regardless of whether you see what's going on in the screen or not i, I think even what's worse as a child and it works as an adult too but what's even worse as a child is the things that you don't see oh, like totally. the things that they allude to mm -hmm. because i'm like your, your mind is like a child it's just like and go and go in all these kind of crazy directions and then like when you come back and watch it as an adult you're like but that's like that's what scared me like that's mm -hmm. cheesy but like if you take away the visual aesthetic and then you think of it as like well what if like that did happen though like that would be yeah. terrifying you know so yeah. even if, like it's cheesy 
to see and then you're like oh but like what if what if like my house was haunted and like yeah. was trying to like possess somebody or, or like kill somebody or something and you're like that that's freaking freaky dude <laughs> some movies are way scarier hours later for sure because then when i'm watching it i'm like this is goofy this is silly like i'm having a good time don't get me wrong but like it's not scary and then later laying in bed with all the lights out like staring at my open closet door and wondering <laughs> what if something did happen <laughs> and then it's scary yeah i totally agree though that sometimes once you see something it sort of destroys that magic and I think that might be why things are scarier as kids is because our imaginations are so much more vivid mm -hmm. and we don't have as much lived experience. And so we have no choice but to imagine a lot of things. And now we're adults and we've seen more things and that sort of makes life a little more boring. But sometimes it's really disappointing to see something in a movie. Like there is a TV show I started watching called Evil and it's pretty good it's pretty fun it's like a group of people who are investigating like possible supernatural occurrences for the catholic church but there's like in one of the early episodes this demonic creature who when they don't show him much and all you see is like a movement of shadow and you realize that wasn't a shadow that was a hand like that's yeah. terrifying it was such an ooh scene but then five minutes later they show him in like full face makeup like colored contact lenses and you're like oh no that's just a guy <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just an actor i wanted to like keep living in that moment where it could have been anything and mm -hmm. i think that's why horror like writing mm -hmm. is scarier than a movie a lot of the time because our our minds have to fill in the blanks on right. what something looks like yeah i guess I, you, you kind of kind of knew where i where i was going as, as soon as you started <laughs> talking about you know the like how how you sometimes see things and your, and your mind will take over I mean I that's that's definitely like a big part of I think why I got back into reading for so for for as, as long as I have I used to not be able to read the stuff that I wanted to read like I would always get in trouble <laughs> you know? and it wasn't for for the you know like I, I wasn't like waking up in like a sweat and being like oh no the things are gonna come and get me you know it was just <laughs> a matter of um you know especially like if I went to school and I was going through the library and people just be like, oh, like that's, you know, that's above your, your age group. You can't read that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you get into your, your like early, I guess like your, your late teens into like your early twenties and stuff. And it's like, if you don't have friends that are super into horror and it's like, you're always like reading these books and people are like, what the hell? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, what are you, what are you reading? Like, what is this stuff? And then you're like, ah, oh, it's like, I'm normal. I promise. <laughs> you know it's perfectly uh, normal and healthy <laughs> yeah you know it's like why it's like why do you have to be around a campfire you know with the flashlight or something to be tell the scary story around halloween it's like just yeah just, just have them year round and everything so so one, one of the other things that i think is pretty interesting and this has got to keep you really busy because i am only so i am like a supporting member of the hwa mm -hmm. uh but I don't, I don't have anything out yet. So like, I can't, I can't get into those other, the other ranks of the HWA yet, but yeah. um, you have, what was it four? Is it three or four different groups that you're involved in? Right. So you have the, so it's the HWA, the on science fiction and fantasy writers, right? Yeah. Science fiction and fantasy writers okay. of America, but I think they're changing that too 
science fiction and fantasy writers association because uh, so much of the membership is outside america now okay okay yeah. uh the cat writers association right yes <laughs> and then the league of utah writers so i mean yes. you're so can you like um break down some of like the different perks and kind of like what those are uh the different ones are about and kind of like why you're uh in each of those just for the listeners if they're looking for um some kind of writers group to join yeah for sure um so if you are listening to this because you're into horror definitely the horror writers association is stellar um one of the benefits that they have is a mentorship program where you can get paired with a writer who's farther along in that journey and they can help you get farther along in your journey um and other benefits, uh, local chapters will oftentimes, you know, have meetings or activities. I joined the Horror Writers Association back in 2016, I think, because I heard that the local chapter was going ghost hunting and I wanted to go. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, <laughs> so I just joined as like a supporting member and I didn't have to in order to go on the ghost hunt, but I was like, no, I love horror. I love writing. I'm doing this. Um, and we went and it was amazing. And at the ghost hunt, they mentioned, hey, we're putting together this anthology as a chapter. Um, the theme is Apocalypse Utah. So stories set during or after some type of apocalyptic event in Utah. You should write one and submit it. And I did and got in. So that was my nice. first published short story was through the Utah chapter of the HWA. Um, they also, the HWA puts on StokerCon, which is a super rad horror convention every year. Um, and it covers like horror writing, horror graphic novels, movies. There's like lots of different classes and you get to pitch agents and stuff there and just meet other people who were also the weirdos whose friends were <laughs> like, why are you consuming so much horror? I'm concerned about you. <laughs> so yeah, Horror Writers Association is great. And I'm sure I just skipped a million other benefits as well. Um, if you have a full active membership, like you've met a certain earnings threshold, um, then you can vote in the Stoker Awards. So um, those are the awards for horror writing across different mediums. The Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America is pretty similar, but it has a broader genre base. It's any type of speculative fiction, so sci-fi, fantasy, horror, anything. They have a lot of benefits too, like full members get uh, voting rights for the Nebula Awards, which are a pretty Ooh. big, pretty big yeah. sci-fi fantasy award. Um, they have lots of benefits for if you are published or publishing things like um, you can get your books onto NetGalley for really cheap. <laughs> so lots of benefits there and message boards and a discord channel where you can network and ask for advice and learn from people who like once again are just a little farther along than you. I'm a part of the League of Utah Writers, which is local here in Utah, but we interestingly have members all over the country that just like the resources and join mm -hmm. so people don't have to live in Utah. Um, and it's kind of the same deal, you know, it's like a, like a networking opportunity, being able to learn from other people. They put on a stellar conference every August called the Quills Conference that's really small and intimate and is like a hidden gem and they'll have huge agents come and take pitches and like big keynote speakers every year. So 
and I volunteer for the League of Utah Writers as their publications chair. So I produce the anthologies that they publish every year and run all of the back end production side. And then the, the little obscure one is the Cat Writers Association, which they're for people who write about cats, largely nonfiction. So people with cat blogs where they're, you know, reviewing different pet products or giving advice about like, I have 30 cats in my feral cat colony and I'm going to write this blog so that you can see all the things I've learned about feral cats from my colony and it's fascinating reading. So I joined them because I wanted a press card to be able to get into cat related events. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and that's the benefit of being a member of the CWA is you get um, a press card because you're going to write about it for your blog. And one of my more recent novels, Dawn's Legacy, won a Muse medallion from the Cat Writers Association. And it's an actual literal medallion with a big cat on it. And I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess I sort of like collect organizations because there's so many different benefits. And yeah. it's only a bummer at the end of the year when you have to pay all your dues at once. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And I think that a good thing about most, most of, um the the different organizations right uh is the fact that like they're not terribly expensive if it's just like one of them you know uh so i think uh having at least one association with with one of these groups depending on what genre it is you know it doesn't necessarily you know if anybody is like is listening to this it doesn't necessarily mean that you like you have to be an active writer or like making an income from anything right like um mm -hmm. like with the hwa you know like they have like the different tiers and like you were saying with the, the science fiction and fantasy writers association they like they have the different tiers as well so if you're just somebody who just like likes supporting stuff and is thinking about getting into those kinds of things that stuff is always really cool it's, it's almost like uh having a non-local unless you have like a local chapter um like a, a, a non uh local kind of like writers community or era or, or critique, critique group you mm -hmm. know like if if, yeah. if you can find some people that have like a, a some free time or something to to check out your work i'm not saying like join one of these and spam everyone's email and be like read my stuff is it good should i publish yeah. it like no probably don't do that <laughs> a lot of them though do have like really well organized critique groups um mm -hmm. you know where they'll say every month you can submit up to five pages of something and we'll pair you with someone so it is a really good way to find critique partners if you're not having a lot of luck finding them on your own or if your first baby critique group that you join um none of you know what you're doing <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it's nice to learn from other critique groups what they're doing and how to critique in a meaningful and useful way yeah so one of the things that really stood out to me when i was looking over some of the things that go into your writing and then some of the like i, I like looking at different uh hurdles that people kind of have to go through in this writing process because unlike you know like the list that uh, i had mentioned earlier you know there's there's a lot that goes into writing a book or podcasting and everything else and i think a lot of times when people look at the final product of a creative's drive and you know all, all the all the stuff that they put into a certain product they kind of forget like the more human side of it and so I wanted to ask this question. It might be a sensitive topic. So if it is, I can always just ask another question and just cut this part out. Okay. Uh, but uh, when I was looking at your stuff, I came across 
um, something that said that you have epilepsy. How does that affect your writing or does it at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I do have epilepsy and it is one of the primary driving factors of my anxiety. (laughs) So, and I think anxiety for me personally, writing helps my anxiety Mm -hmm. because for example, this isn't related to epilepsy, but a number of years ago, we were having a lot of trouble figuring out why I was having some respiratory issues. And I'd been going through a lot of testing and couldn't figure it out. And I had all this anxiety that something really sinister was happening deep inside my body. And we were only getting the tip of the iceberg. And I spent a lot of the time imagining worst case scenarios. And the only way to help with that was to write some worst case scenarios and like get them out of my system that way. So, um, so yeah, so epilepsy kind of is a bummer. Mine is really well controlled. So I don't have seizures very often. And I enjoyed a lovely 20 years in remission between seizures. And it only came out of remission in 2019. So I've been working with it a little bit more closely since then. When I do have a seizure, it kind of wrecks me for a long time. So, you know, your whole brain like shuts down and reboots. And Mm -hmm. um, so I'll usually be sick for a couple of weeks after. And sometimes when you're like sick in bed, the only things you can do are read and write because I'm really photosensitive in general. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially after a seizure, like sometimes I can't even watch TV for a long time. So reading and writing definitely help get through that. I just, I'm shopping around a novel right now um, where the main character has epilepsy. So I'm finally actually bringing it into my writing in a more literal sense, instead of just like, let's let our anxiety like seep out onto the page. So yeah, so it's definitely had a big impact, I guess, on my journey. And then Mousetrap, I actually wrote pretty quick after a seizure that I had earlier this year. So mm-hmm. um, the other thing that seizures do is make you lose your license for a while. <laughs> so yeah. um, here in Utah, you lose it for three months. Mm-hmm. And when it's when I'm kind of like trapped in my house, reading and writing are a good way of escaping these walls. Because <laughs> like, I can get rides from people and feel like mm. I'm 15 again and call my dad and be like, can you drive me to work? <laughs> so yeah, so it, it definitely has a lot to, to do with it. I guess silver lining maybe of having to deal with any sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Obstacles, I guess, is that sometimes you have an opportunity to pull something weird out of them. So <laughs> like a weird story idea. <laughs> So how, how, how long did it take you? Cause you said you, you wrote it pretty quickly. How long did it take you to write Mousetrap from like the first idea of it to all the different drafts and, and getting it picked up and everything? Yeah. So the first draft fell out of me really quickly. I was at a writer's convention in early February here in Utah, and I was working in the vendor room with C.R. Langill from Timber Ghost Press. And there's a lot of lulls in vendor rooms at conventions where there's no traffic because everyone's in panels or whatever. So we were, you know, talking horror and I was kicking around an idea with them and came up with this idea for Mousetrap. And Sierra was like, yeah, like, I like that. You should write that. So I did. And interestingly enough, working that convention wore me out so badly that I had a seizure at the end of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and then was out of commission for a few few weeks after that. So I, I outlined it working at the convention, which Mm -hmm. was over three days. 
because in all those lulls, there was so much time that I came up with a pretty, I guess, in-depth outline for it. Mm -hmm. And that really sped up the actual first draft process. So I was able to get a workable first draft in a month, <laughs> but then all the revisions over yeah. and over again and, and pawing <laughs> through it and kind of doing a little bit of reverse plotting. Do you ever do any of that? I would, I would say part of the reason that I don't have anything right now is because I am not a plotter. I'm hmm. an answer. And so I have to think I, it, it might be an ADD thing and like a dyslexic thing, but before I even write anything, I have to come up with an idea, like conceptualize something. And then I have to make sure that I can, I don't, I don't know if anybody else does this, um, so I will, I, I won't have anything on at all. Like I'll turn off all my electronics and it's almost like a meditative kind of thing. And I have hmm. to be able to think about my storyline in my head as a movie and from beginning to an end. And if I can't visualize something and I'm like, okay, that's what I need to work on. Hmm. I don't start writing anything until I can visually see it, but I don't write anything down because I feel like if I write it down, when I'm like first thinking about it, you know, it's going to ruin everything. So then once like I can get from beginning to end, then I'll start writing certain things down, but I don't like technically plan anything. I'm just kind of like, I just let my mind like go wherever it's going to go. So. That's awesome. I've heard a lot of film directors say something kind of similar that they see every single film in, or every single scene in their head like mm -hmm. the way that they wanted to and then they don't start storyboarding until they can see it like really clearly in their head yeah. um i think i'm like a hybrid like a plotter, um <laughs> a plotter and a pantser so at the end when i have a first draft and i actually have like all the all the stuff that i had wanted to get in there i'll mm -hmm. do what's called reverse plotting where i kind of like take it and put it up against like whatever story structure i think is going to work really well or whatever tropes I was hoping to include or like character development things that I didn't have my pants on about when I was writing it and make lots of notes about like, okay, well, like the pacing here should probably be different or I need to make sure that this character who for the entire first draft I named friend actually has a name and adds some like personality for them <laughs> and yeah. some better reasons for them to exist. So that part usually takes me way, way longer than coughing up the first draft so mm -hmm. let's see i think i sent the query to timber ghost in july june mm -hmm. july it was in the summer yeah um and they picked it up and now it's coming out in january <laughs> so yes. yeah so it'll come out i guess slightly under a year from when i first yeah. came up with the concept which feels really awesome. fast yeah I mean, I, that's, that's awesome that like you can put things into perspective because I think like one of the, the, the things that I really hate about, you know, telling some people that don't know me very well that I write, it's like, so you'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working on something and, you know, because it's, I don't, I'm not really in a rush or anything. So it's, I'm just taking my time. And then people would be like, oh, so like I can, you know, like it's going to be out in like a couple months or something. I'm like, uh -huh. <laughs> like, unless I was doing like, just writing like nothing else if i could if i could like wake up have my coffee you know have my hair all kind of like messed up you know i mean it's messed up now but you know like even more so just kind of like disheveled and like sit in front of my 
computer as I guess like most people just think writers do and just kind of yeah. write on my words today you know like yeah it's still it's like it's not it's it's not gonna take a week you know I, I mean not for everyone I mean I know there's some people out there that can literally just blast out a story in a couple of days go back and edit it and yeah get it out and you know oh I wrote a I wrote a book and got it out to the public self-published and everything in like two or three months which is like that's insane yeah I don't know how anybody does that and like kudos to them but I mean that I mean yeah it's a, a year is for some people I think is, is is a seems like a long time for a return but it's actually pretty quick for writing you know yeah definitely um I think the thing that that always gets forgotten about I and for people who are outside of the publishing industry is that like once we're done, we can't just hit go and say, here it is world. Um, especially, you know, working with a publisher like Timber Ghost had a bunch of stuff in the pipe already by the time they took my book on. And so it sort of has to get in line behind all the other things that have to happen and um, cover art and all the editing and stuff like you're mm -hmm. moving through a queue a little bit. Um, the people that I know that put out like six books a year. And I do know some people who do that. And I'm like, how are you alive? <laughs> like, how are you not? <laughs> that's, like... that's like you're competing with Stephen King at that point of like, yeah. how put out more books this year. Like, yeah. Just... And I don't know, their minds work differently than my mind works because I, yeah. I can't even conceive of that many books in a single year. <laughs> and a lot of them self publish them. So mm -hmm. they're able to get them out much faster. And I've self published books as well. Um, and there's no queue, like you're not waiting, you're the top priority because you're you. So you are able to get stuff out like much, much faster. But even then, like all of it takes so long. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a daunting process. And I, you know, I know once I get to the point where like I can start kind of like fishing around and of, of, of like, uh, you know, am I gonna self-publish this or am I gonna get this traditionally published? Um, it's crazy to think about the amount so either way there's a, a lot of work that goes into a book right so it's like whether you're getting traditionally published and that's which is another big thing is when people think of like traditional publishing it's like oh you're writing a book and it's just like they automatically are thinking oh you know I'll go to like Barnes and Noble and pick it up or something you know mm -hmm. and it's like from the time that you if you were going to do the traditional publishing route right you know, and like you said, you know, so you, you write the book, you edit it, and then depending, you know, if you have the money, you know, right, because editors are super expensive, but they're, yeah. it's an important thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, a musician never has uh, the, the person mix their music that they recorded their music with, you know, it's kind of one of those things. So it's like, you're not going to edit your work and then reread it and be like, it's good. You, know, you got to, you got to, <laughs> gonna have like a beta reader or something like it's a couple beta readers or something or, or or if you're lucky you might have an editor that you know that'll just be like yeah you know I got some free time I'll, I'll check it out it's very rare but you know and then it's like like you said you got to get in line mm -hmm. you know so it's like if you're if you're thinking that like your friend is going to write a book and then be like yay it's done and then you know five months down the road it, it's going to be in the bookshelf and, and you know some traditionally published place you know, it's like, well, they have that, depending on where they sent it to, even if it gets accepted, you know, that's two years, two and a half years. I've heard of like some people waiting like three years 
and they've written other books and forgot that they submitted it somewhere uh-huh. <laughs> and they get a letter and they're and they're just like oh like they're working on my book it's getting it's getting published it'll be out in like this time and it's like you forget because it's, yeah. it's so long and you know <laughs> and so, so it's like you can't just like sit down and be like I'm gonna write this book I'm gonna be on the New York Times bestsellers list and I'll buy a house in in a year and a half like <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of worry about that. Like sometimes when I'm working on a project, I'm like, okay, well, for safety, I should probably go back and reread everything I published to make sure I didn't just plagiarize myself. <laughs> so I could imagine someone being like, oh crap, that's getting published because I just wrote something eerily similar because I assumed that other thing was dead. So <laughs> that'd be a good surprise, good news from past Corinne to have some thing, some forgotten thing actually get out in the world like does this does this cover look good for your book be like what what <laughs> did i did i skip the coffee today like what, what, do you, what do you mean so what would you say then is the i guess the biggest difference and the the easiest and the hardest hurdles that you've come across between doing the traditional publishing route and the self-publishing route Either way, they're both a lot of work. The author has to shoulder the vast majority of the marketing if they're traditionally published anyway. So I wouldn't say that one's necessarily more work than the other. They're just different kinds of work. So the things that the publisher will take on for sure is like handling the editing, handling the cover art. So that gets off your plate and they probably know, hopefully a lot better than you do. What's like a marketable cover? (laughs) No guarantees. Um, sometimes I see books and I'm like, wow, that was put out by by a publisher that actually like everyone's heard of, like, and they chose that cover. It's interesting, interesting choices. Um, but I think, oh, man, they're just so different. Like, I almost feel like you have to try both before you know which one works for you. Mm-hmm. And luckily i think if you want to try traditional and publishing you don't necessarily have to go through the query trenches with a novel and hope it gets picked up somewhere you can maybe submit to an anthology and Mm -hmm. see how it feels for someone else to be making the final decisions about your creative work and Mm -hmm. to not have any control over what the cover looks like or the other folks that you're getting published alongside and see if that feels good And if that feels good, then that's probably the route that you want to go. If you just want to be like, here's my work and then great. Here's the finished book. I'm going to market this and share it with people and try to get the word out about it. Cause if that works for you, then traditional publishing is going to be pretty similar, you know, but self-publishing I've actually liked a lot of the things about self-publishing because I'm kind of a little bit of a control freak about my own work. So I like being able to have the final say on things or at least have some input, you know, because some publishers are like, here's your cover. That's it. We're not going to listen to anything. But Timber Ghost is awesome because they're like, here's what we think we should do for the cover. What do you think of this rough concept? Good. Okay. Now let's go to this cover artist that I'm a fan of. So for my cover, we worked with Donnie Goodman and Timber Ghost sent me back. Hey, this is what the concept is. Like, do you have any major issues with it is there anything Mm -hmm. that you were hoping would be on there so i feel like i did still get to be a part of that cover conversation but i got to utilize timber ghost expertise on well here's what works in horror for this particular brand but the flip side of you know that is with 
them, they've got the final say and they're taking care of it all. And if there is something that you're hoping to change or is different, then you work with someone else to do it. And with self-publishing, for better or worse, you can do it as quickly as you want to. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I think the the biggest hurdle probably with self-publishing is learning on your own and mm -hmm. trying to find communities that can help you figure out those big things and having a lot of missteps and that working with a publisher, you almost kind of have like a mentor and a guide and you can be asking the publisher questions like, what are you guys going to be doing? What do you recommend that I be doing? What what can we do to have some synergy together? Yeah, I find one of the, the biggest turnoffs for me, and it's something that like I've, I've very much debated about, like, do I want to go the traditional route at some point in time? Because mm -hmm. I am very much a cover art person. I don't mm -hmm. care if it's like comics or video games or books or movies. You know, like I'll always, I, I love going to like a physical media place you know mm -hmm. and just sometimes just doing blind buys and being like this looks great you know and i do the same thing with like streaming services like i'll watch some of the most like bonkers ridiculous movies <laughs> based off like a cover and i'm like i'm in it you know i can't back out now like here we are you know yeah and I think one of the, the biggest things that bothers me about traditional publishing, and this is not a, like a riff on traditional publishing or, or, you know, anybody who has a cover out there that's like this, but I think one of the things that deters me a lot from reading a book, even if it's really good, is when I see something that it has nothing to do with the book. It's like, you know, like the, the kind of stock picture where you know it's just it's just the words and then like some random image and then you like you read the book and you're like but the cover has nothing to do with the book it doesn't relay any of the feelings or mm -hmm. anything um, oh like those high concept covers where it's like the text is 90 percent of the cover and then there's a tree branch yeah yeah so and yeah like, and there's like one pastel color or, or something yeah. you know <laughs> you're like yeah so those those kind of covers it's just like Especially I feel like if I was going like a traditional published route, I, that's when I would be like, can we, can we please, like, I know, I know I probably don't have any say in it, but can we not do that cover? Like, can, you, <laughs> can we try here, you know, like yeah. get the people like me that are going to walk, you know, cause I, I feel like there's a lot of books that when I go to just like do like random book buys, you know, cause those, those are always the dangerous ones too. Is like when you have like a really good cover and like, I'll go to the, this is the one reason why I, I haven't gone to the bookstore in a while. Cause I'm trying to like, just get through the stuff that I have right now. But it's like I'll be in a uh, I'll be in like the sci-fi section and I'll be like I I'm just picking up this book by like season Liu or something yeah know? and then like I turn the corner and there's just like that one book that's staring you down and it's just <laughs> like I look good right and you're just like, oh, <laughs> I can't do this right now <laughs> uh, yep, and then, then you walk out like, with like ten books <laughs> exactly because we're not gonna make a Sophie's choice like we're yeah. not gonna leave anyone behind <laughs> we're taking them all home. Yeah, so with with Mousetrap, I like the way that it's it's simple, mm -hmm. but it tells you, you know, like what like some of the, the very key elements of the book is going to be about. And that's a lot of times it's really all you need. You need something that's going to be not that generic kind of like text pastel color 
this is a book with the tree branch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know like mm. give me give me a little something you know it's kind of like when you like when you go to any kind of writing convention there is always going to be that one person that stresses and it's not something I I am more of like the first chapter kind of person or but there's always going to be that one person that stresses like the first sentence of your book Mm-hmm. It's the most important thing you can do in your writing like you need the hook <laughs> and I'm like I kind of feel like if you're going to go to that extent like the cover is the same thing oh totally absolutely yeah. it's really cool like hearing that you, you know like you actually got to have some say in like what the cover looks like and like they're actually willing to work with you and everything and you know Timber Ghost Press is, is pretty good on that stuff anyways yeah. um, I don't think there has been one disappointing cover that I have seen from Timber Ghost and I'm not just saying that because uh, Cody's been on the show before or anything but yeah. like the, co- the covers are always something that really stands out so like applause <laughs> yeah the covers <laughs> are know? stellar um like you had P.L. McMullen on a little while ago and the cover for Sisters of the Crimson Vine is so just flat yeah. out gorgeous all their covers are great but that one with all the the wine label stuff on the mm-hmm. back was just <laughs> but i i love the mousetrap cover i love it feels to me the way that horror book covers were in kind of the 80s and the mm-hmm. early 90s where they were really simple they focused on like one element donnie put in some of that distressed effect too so mm-hmm. that even though it's brand new it kind of looks like you picked it up from the bargain bin at the used bookstore so yeah yeah I like that. it's like it's like it's got that kind of like the grainy feel and I mean this is gonna date me but I'm I'm fine with that um it's like you know when you're a kid and get the Polaroid camera yes and you take something that's more in like a dimly lit room and it's got that like super graininess to it and now like the only times that you see those kinds of things it's like if you're watching a horror film and somebody pulls out a camera and like nobody knows what the hell it is now <laughs> you know <laughs> And it's one of those things where it's, uh, you know, especially in like paranormal and like ghost kind of stuff, you know, because the flash is how you catch the, the, uh, the like ghosts the and everything. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, oh, smile, you know, and it was, it was, I think they had like a, wasn't there a goosebumps say cheese and die, right? Wasn't yes. It? Yeah. Yes. And they had the Polaroid and yes. you could take the picture and like, and you it would see show like how like they would die future. or something. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which like also that is a lot of those concepts in those books, like, you could really go like a hundred percent. This is an adult book. <laughs> yeah, of some of them were genuinely terrifying, like the say cheese and die one, and then others were so silly. Like I'm pretty sure I didn't dream it. I'm pretty confident that in one, the antagonist is a sponge under the sink. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that episode from the show. I don't think I ever read that book. At some point in time, I want to go and, re- and read like the whole collection. But I remember that one from the TV series. It was one of those weird things where I had wanted to watch Attack of the Killer Tomatoes when I was young, <laughs> and that was like an off-limits thing. I like that my parents didn't think I was ready for that, but then like I watched that episode and I was like, I feel like this is almost the same thing. It's a sponge, <laughs> and they have like these like orange eyes and like these Little teeth. Things. And, yeah, yeah and like, <laughs> you know, I was like, goodness gracious, this is. <laughs> I would love to let's start like an adult book club where every month we read one of the Goosebumps books (laughs) I'm I'm sure that that would that would probably blow up pretty well I mean there's a few people that I I follow on Instagram that are like they voraciously like 
look for those books and, you know they're like i got i got like these five hidden volumes that like i didn't even know existed and this is the old cover and this is the new one I'm like, yeah. like they had <laughs> like multiple it's the covers. beanie babies of our generation i guess although yeah. <laughs> beanie babies were the beanie babies of our generation <laughs> but uh i used to have a huge collection of goosebumps and uh when i got into high school i had this regrettable moment of generosity. And I said, I'm going to put all my Goosebumps books and my old babysitters club and all these big book series into a box. And I'm going to give them to my younger cousins mm. so that they can also experience these. And now I'm like, what the hell passed Corinne? You gave away <laughs> all those wonderful books. <laughs> yeah. You had to phone them and be like, do you still, do you still have those? Are those somewhere? Yeah, give definitely not. I would just end up sad. <laughs> So with uh, like cutting back into um, Mousetrap here, is there is there any amount of folklore that you put into the antagonist, or is that something that is just like completely you just kind of like pulled from a hat and was just like this is this is what it's going to be and this is it fits the story kind of thing, or is is there any kind of tale behind it? There's what I guess we could call neighborhood folklore. So I grew up in the house that I live in now. When my parents mm -hmm. moved, I bought it from them because I couldn't handle the idea of someone else like living in quote unquote my house. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in the same house and there's a cul-de-sac across the street from me. And a little while ago, maybe two or three years, I posted on Facebook about a blog post I'd written about a real life haunting two neighborhoods over. Ooh. This girl who grew up in my neighborhood commented and she said, did I ever tell you about the things that happened in our house, like just across the way? And I was like, you did not, you did not tell me. <laughs> and I would sure appreciate it if you did now. So she told me a bunch of just wild stuff that would happen in their house. All the homes in this neighborhood are really old, like from the thirties mm -hmm. and her house, she and her brother experienced a bunch of stuff. Like if they stayed out in the backyard too late at night, this old woman would come running at them from the trees and yell at them and chase Ooh. them in the house. And uh, she said that doors would open and close on their own, lock and unlock on their own. A couple of her younger siblings, or maybe just one of them, somehow got locked in a room for hours and they could not get the door open. And he was just trapped in there. Yeah, the face you're making right now, that's the face the like. <laughs> I was like, I would move. <laughs> but one of the stories in particular that she told me served as the basis for like the inciting incident for this haunting that happens to the family in Astoria, Oregon. The same thing happened to her and her little brother. They would hear their name being whispered from the bottom of the outside stairwell. Oops. So like from the shadows, <laughs> like come down into the basement. Nope, sure won't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, like we're uh, going to put that in the box of nopes today. Yeah, we're not doing exactly. It's overflowing, <laughs> but we're going to cram it in there. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that was the little bit of neighborhood folklore. And I'm a, I am a hardcore believer in ghosts. So, yeah. yeah. So I like pulling in um, the, what I consider very real things that have happened to my friends and family. So if you tell me of something that happened to you, like some type of haunting, it's probably going to end up in one of my stories. And I apologize in advance for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you got to pull the stuff from somewhere, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, and this is something that I, I, I've looked into every now and then, and I think 
you know, I, sh I should probably do something with it if, if I can. I think it'd be kind of hard to do now. But apparently, from what my mother had told me, she grew up in a house when she was very young that was haunted. And there were all these sort of kinds of like strange things that would happen. Like she, one of the things that she always remembers and, and she would go up to the attic and there would be, there's like a, a rocking chair that was there, but like it wasn't there. You know okay. I mean? Rocking chair um, in the attic. I'm already like, I've got yeah. the goosebumps. <laughs> um, there's somebody that like this, this, what she describes is like a, the smaller kind of guy that was there and would always try and talk to her. And then she would leave, you know, she was like, no, nope, I'm not doing that. You know, you get freaked out because you're a kid and you're like, who the hell is this random person in the attic? You know, and then she would go down and tell her mom and my grandmother would be like, well, there's nobody that lives up there and we don't have a rocking chair, <laughs> you know? And so like, there were all these kind of like weird things that would go on. And I was like super into like wanting to know about it. And I was just like, hey, like, can you like send me the address? It's this and the other thing, yada, yada, yada. So I get to it. And a few years ago, I looked it up, um, or at least it seems like a few years ago. It might have been more recent than that. Um, but I looked it up, and unfortunately, they tore the house down, and it is now a gas station. Oh. But interestingly, the people who own that land and owned the house before live right across the street. And there are things that I guess my mom and my grandmother have ask them about that house that they won't say anything about like they just change the subject so i want to like figure out a way to contact them and you know like look up maybe like the town records or something yeah. like something must have happened in this house and it's like i want to know but it's like the the people that own the house won't say anything about it and i'm pretty sure there's probably no records i haven't looked that far into it yet but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in houses. And I think like one of the, the interesting things about a lot of hauntings is when people point out that kids are more susceptible to that kind of stuff, like they're, mm -hmm. they're closer drawn to it. And I, I've always wondered, I'm just like, well, how much of it is, you know, playing on that kind of fear of the unknown? Because it's like, you know, you hear something and you're like, that's what it is. Or like, if you're in a dark room, right. And this is something that always used to freak me out because I would hyper fixate on it as I'd be like, I'd, I'd be in my bed and I'd be like, you know, trying to calm my nerves from like ADD and ADHD and everything. It's like getting to sleep. is a terrible process every day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they get in bed and it's like, you're tired. And that's when your brain is like, Hey, Hey, all these things, you want to do this? Let's go do this. And you're just like, no, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta stop me, you know? And so I used to have this coat rack in my room and I knew it was a coat rack, but like, sometimes I knew that there was nothing on my coat rack and mm -hmm. I would look at it. And since it's nighttime, you know, I didn't sleep with like a, a nightlight on or anything. So it was just night in the moonlight. And I would like see something like coming off of the coat rack and like walking towards me. And so I'd have to like run and turn my light on. And I'm like, but there's nothing, there's literally nothing in the room. And I'm just like, am I just making things in up in my head because mm -hmm. I'm, you know, like freaked some, I didn't want to admit that like the, the darkness was kind of like a spooky thing when, when yeah. Kid, right because it's like it's, it's not really that and I don't know who's who said this but I, I know um, I've heard this quote a few times is it's not that we're afraid of being in the dark right it's a it's being afraid of what's in the dark yeah 
being afraid yeah. that we're not alone. <laughs> right. <this> hard. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I feel like as a general rule that if you are a child, you should not be forced to have a rocking chair or a coat rack in your bedroom. <laughs> Because they're both just like nightmare fuel. Yeah. Um, so we have a like a row of coat hooks um, mm -hmm. in my dining room, and it's a straight shot. If you're sitting in my den in one particular spot on the couch, you can see right through to where all the coats are hanging. And mm -hmm. when my friend Jill comes over to watch scary movies, she's like always seeing those coats out of the corner of her eye. And she says it really freaks her out because something scary is going on on the screen. And then she's like, there's a man in the kitchen. No, it's right. just a coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta like, you gotta, you gotta keep the coat rack out of sight from when you're gonna be watching something scary and then just put it at like an odd, an odd height. You know, like yeah. Nobody, nobody's like that height. short or something. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. like. Because then, you know, something is really messed up if you have like, you know, if you put your coat rack and it's like, you have to like reach up. Yes. And <laughs> if you, if really, you see really the high. movement and your coat rack is at like eight and a half feet or something, some like random height and it starts moving, mm -hmm. then there might be some issues, you know? Yeah. Then you can be pretty confident <laughs> that you're dealing with something supernatural and not just the coat that you foolishly put at your own height. <laughs> so the haunted coat rack. Yeah. If that's not a Goosebumps book, I'll be surprised. <laughs> well, if R.L. Stein is for some reason listening, <laughs> that's your new, that's the new book. Get to it. <laughs> so one of the, one of the other things, and this is, this is one of the more like fun, nerdy things. Um, something that I've always wanted to get into is that you have also done some work for tabletop RPGs. Yeah, so there is an awesome RPG system called Arium, and it's what they call system neutral. So it can be used if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or Aliens or, or whatever you're playing. And it's sort of a way to help do world building really, really quickly. So you can do collaborative world building with, with your players and just establish like some key roles or come up with MacGuffins or, you know, whatever is going to be really fun for everyone. So they have a supplemental book coming out soon called Arium Flash, mm -hmm. and it has a whole bunch of pre-built little 200 word or less scenarios that are kind of constructed like Mad Libs. So they have a bunch of blanks. So, you know, it'll be like your team goes here to get blank and you and your team, you know, you and your players have spent that world building time to determine what that blank is going to be. So it kind of provides like a loose structure or some folklore um, or a setting that can be used for jumping into a game really quickly. And they had me write the modern horror story seeds. So Ooh. all of mine are horror that takes place in the modern world. And awesome. I'm so jazzed about them and, and all the other story seeds in there are so good. I don't have a release date for that yet, but I've heard that it's going through sensitivity reading now, which is like one of the final steps in the editing process. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that comes out early next year. But if you're a tabletop gamer, Arium is so much fun. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Can you can you uh, elaborate for those who might not know what like a sensitivity reader does and like what the main responsibilities for them are? Yeah. Well. And I'm not an expert. I've utilized sensitivity readers, but I'm sure that that's a pretty narrow focus and they probably do a lot more than just what I've encountered. But essentially, there's someone who's reading 
the story from a perspective that's not your own, that's typically a marginalized perspective, mm-hmm. who is historically been misrepresented um, in a lot of stories or portrayed in a negative light, um, so that you can make sure that you're not continuing or um, carrying forward any of those harmful stereotypes or cultural appropriation, you know, writing from a perspective that is not your own. And so you are misrepresenting that, you know. And I think it's really important because for a lot of us, we first get to know people who are from different backgrounds through writing. If you grew up in a pretty homogenous area, then maybe the first characters that you meet are people that you know you get from like books you've read or movies you've watched. So sometimes it's nice to have, I would say it's always nice and very important to have a sensitivity reader who can help you identify, hey, this characteristic of this character or this habit that they have or the way that you're portraying them is not true it's not based on reality it's actually based on this very harmful stereotype that hollywood came up with in the 30s so (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe one that you could put to bed and, and not use so they also might be helpful for just anything that's a marginalized group of people or like I said, someone who's misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that they can also help identify trigger warnings. And I think that that may be one of the key reasons that it's going through sensitivity uh, reading is because um, when, you know, like when I'm playing tabletop gaming, I appreciate when the DM and I can have a conversation of like, you know, please don't do any graphic descriptions of eye Mm -hmm. mutilation. I would appreciate that. Or let's maybe not have any animals get abused. Um, so I think it's, you know, really helpful, uh, to help make sure people can curate their own experiences Mm -hmm. and that people can be informed enough to decide that's not for me, um, if there can be warnings available. So. Awesome. Yeah. I think they're, they're super important, especially like what you're saying for like, I want to say like unrecognized, right. People that are just like mis misrepresented. Mm-hmm. or like certain characteristics like especially like once you start getting into different levels of psychotic kinds of behavior how you know people like hear that word and they're just like nope they're crazy like you know they're always the villain and it's like sometimes it's just it could literally just be a tick mm-hmm. you know or something something triggers them like you're saying with the trigger words um it could be a sound or you know a flashing image or something you know yeah um and so being able to portray that as like, no, like they're not always uh, a villain. You know, sometimes it's just like something that they have to deal with and you might not ever notice. Yeah. You know, it could just be something that is just, they learn how to deal with it or they, they're on a medication or something, or, you know, sometimes it's just, it's not something that is Im- impactful on their life as, you know, it, it might be from the perspective of somebody who's looking at that, like 30, 1930s, 1940s, like misunderstanding, misrepresentation of something. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I always thought that that kind of stuff was, was pretty cool. And I'm glad to see that there's more, there's more and more of that kind of work going around, you know, in all the different kinds of mediums, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. With tabletop RPGs, uh, I remember going back and like playing Vampire the Masquerade when I yes. was growing up. And there's there's a few there's a few other ones out there, you know. And I get to the point where like I was like super deep into it because you know, we never had like a, a set time when when everyone was around and we could just sit down and play. I do know that there's a fair number of people and I'm wondering if, if this is something that you utilize as well 
is the the character creation sheets that some of these games have are really good for character creation for authors. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, have you ever utilized any of those different templates to help uh, flesh out any of the characters in any of your books? Yeah, definitely. I haven't specifically used one that was created for an RPG, mm-hmm. but I definitely do use a character sheet to flesh out my characters. I think it's really helpful for speeding up my drafting process if I already know before writing a scene with that character what they look like, (laughs) like how their personality has impacted the scene where the setting is. Like, for example, you know, if I wrote a scene that took place in a character's car, I might want to know, is that character just a total slob and there's McDonald's containers in the back seat? And what does that smell like? (laughs) (laughs) You know, knowing a lot about the characters going in, I think makes the drafting process easier knowing what their flaws are. I think mm-hmm. that makes them really interesting. I love that part of the D&D character creation process of finding out what their flaws are and like, you know, what their big motivations are. It just makes the role playing way more fun, but I don't tend to get uh, really deep in the weeds on them at first. I've mm-hmm. got friends who they get like so in depth, they've got pages and pages of the character. <laughs> and for me, that slows me down too much and I yeah. think boxes me in. So I like to, in that reverse plotting process at the end, go through and kind of add some more meat to the character and I guess just sharpen the reasons why they're in the story and what purpose they serve and make sure that it's not the same purpose as somebody else. So I think it's fun to do sort of your character creation at the beginning and a little bit at the end. So could you could you go and I guess this is more just for me too um, because like I said I'm in, I'm 100% more a pantser than a planner what is reverse planning and like what what like what do you what are like the main things that you you a I guess look for and um why are you looking for those kinds of things like yeah so there's a whole bunch of different pretty common story structures for American narratives the structures and storytelling are different all over the world but for what Americans are typically used to consuming and seeing in books and movies there's like some very common structures like save the cat is a really popular structure for example where at the beginning you have the hero do something good like save a poor kitten so that we know we like that person and (laughs) we're on their side (laughs) so i i typically use a story structure that lays out the beats of a three-act structure just in really broad strokes terms Mm -hmm. so like 10 percent of the way into the story is going to be your inciting incident And at the end of act one, this is going to be, you know, the reveal that sort of changes everything. And here's where there's going to be the darkest night kind of moment right before the big breakthrough of how we're going to solve this problem. So I like using that at the end. And this is why it's called reverse plotting is because instead of filling in all of those moments and making sure that I'm hitting the pacing before I start writing Mm -hmm. at the end, I make sure that the pacing of the book loosely fits into that where, you know, the inciting incident isn't on the first page and we have an opportunity to get to know the character as they are to understand why it makes sense that they react to these obstacles that they're facing in the way that they do. So I might rearrange scenes or take stuff out because I'll realize, wow, the first half of this book is way too long <laughs> and the <laughs> second half goes downhill way too quickly. So by doing that at the end, I don't bog myself down too much. I have a really nasty habit that I have to curb of 
procrastinating in really productive ways. So instead of <laughs> sitting down and writing, maybe I'll just sit here and I'll um, obsess over the plot for a little while or, you know, get really too detailed about what the French fries in the backseat smell like um, and how many of them there are. <laughs> so the stuff that I can put off till the end to make sure that it's a solid structure and that I'm conveying everything that I want to, that way I've done the hard part already and I can like, you know, focus on other stuff. I'm real good at procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> The finding, uh, find, I, I think finding the, the balance between the senses, right? So, cause you, as you mentioned how you can, uh, obsess about, you know, what, what did the fries smell like? Or mm -hmm. like, oh, you went in like that damp room, but what does it smell like? You know, uh, going through the writing phase and, and this, this is another thing that I think about, you know, when I sit down and I'm just like trying to pan everything out, smell and hearing and i found that people that have adhd we tend to like there are things that we hear that bother us that don't bother other people mm -hmm. um like fluorescent lighting the amount of times i've been in a room and like you have that like mm, uh -huh. <laughs> and no one else hears it i'm like do not do you not hear that it's like a maddening kind of thing yeah like, so i hate man like if somebody took like kidnapped me and put me in a room just with fluorescent lights and just left me there i'd probably go insane Please no, have, one do, please no one do that. <laughs> we have a little server thing in our basement and it's yeah. right by the TV and my husband can't hear it, but oh, I no. can. And so when I, when I go down there to watch a movie, the first thing I do is like walk over and unplug it. Cause <laughs> if it's offline, it just like, it's still fine. We don't lose any data if we unplug it for a while. <laughs> so like, it'll still hang on to the data that it has. And anyway, I have to go unplug it and he laughs at me and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to enjoy the movie because during mm -hmm. any quiet parts, I'm going to hear it. And it's not a consistent hum. Mm -hmm. It's like uneven and it yeah. comes at weird moments. And ugh, I hate it so much. I like, I, I need to figure out a new place to put it, but there's not anywhere else <laughs> we can put it in the house. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> So. But, th but those are the kinds of things where it's like, so there's, there's books that do a very good job of description, you know, going through all the different senses, you know, this is what it smells like, and this is what it looks like, and this is what it feels like, you know, but those are like telling you those kinds of things. But one of the things that really gets me involved in something when you're writing about characters is how do they react to that? Like, do they smell those things? And going through and kind of going from the description of what the room is like to the description of what the character is seeing and how they react to it. Yeah. Because it's like, you could go in and be like, the room smelled, you know, terrible, like burnt garbage and like day old pizza or something. But if you relate that to a reaction from the character you know like they the they recoiled because of that smell you know and and i guess if you want to go like super in depth with a character if you're just first introducing them then you tie that into something out like why do they not like that smell you know obviously yeah. like nobody wants to smell something that's like burnt garbage you know but then there are other times where like some people don't like vanilla scented candles and you're like what's up 
what? But, you know, if you tie it back into something else and it's just like, it could be a bad memory or, you know, maybe, maybe that's what the garbage smelled like. Like I've gone to, luckily not in my adult life, but I've gone to um, some of my friends' houses or I shouldn't say houses or dorms uh, for college, you know, and they wouldn't take the trash out, but they would like spray, you know, like they had like the Febreze or something. And you're like, you dude, like you just, you need to take your trash out. And they're like, is that what that is? Is that what that is? And you're just like, <laughs> what? Like, how do you, did you, you're like, oh, you know, like I thought there was like a bad smell and I opened my window and it wouldn't go away. And I'm like, oh, did you clean your trash can? Like, what is, what? <laughs> you know, and like having yeah. those kind of connections with um, the characters is also something that I think is, is super important. So I could see how like going back and, um aside from like cutting cutting things down where you need to in that editing process but like seeing like oh you know like maybe the characters and you know going to react this way because I haven't made them set up that way or oh like you know the character doesn't like that smell or you know they're not reacting to this this, that certain kind of way so yeah that might be something that like I'll go back and do you know before it sounds like a good thing to do (laughs) that's definitely what I feel like is a second draft thing you know like making a checklist and making sure that every scene has some type of a sensory Mm -hmm. connection and then maybe a later checklist says make sure that your the way your character recognizes or describes that is relevant to them you know Mm -hmm. like if they've never had something like if they've never been around a dirty diaper then they can't think something smells like a dirty diaper like what would they think that smells like Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the trap that I fell into when I was writing my first book was it needs to be perfect the first time around and I can't move on from this chapter until it's perfect and and I got everything I wanted in there and I think I've finally gotten better at make just the first draft is where I put in everything that happens that's yeah. it <laughs> and then later I'll make the time to go add back in all those details that I would have agonized over um, yeah. the first time around before. So since we're kind of like drawing towards the end here, you know, it does, it never feels like it's, it's that long, um, <laughs> <laughs> but is there, and, and you know, there's these episodes, you know, they, they always have some really great content as far as like different kinds of nuggets of advice and everything throughout. But is there, if, if there was one thing that you could relate to other authors, you know, new, new and seasoned what is like that one piece of good information that you would want to relate to others as far as, you know, something that you've learned along the way? Like in terms of writing or publishing or any of it? Yeah, the whole, the whole shebang. The whole thing. All right. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Man, I, I know there's probably, there's, there's many things, but you know, like one is, and it could be more than one. I don't know. You could tie yeah. something together. I think you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier was finding groups to be a part of or critique groups. And I think one of the most important things is to get to get people to read your work. And I think it's important for two reasons. First, if you have someone waiting on it, for me personally, that is a hell of a like motivation. Like I need a deadline or I probably won't do something. So if I can tell a critique partner, I'm gonna have this for you next Wednesday, 
then I will make a much more concerted effort to actually do that. And if you want anyone ever to read your book, then you have to get comfortable with people getting to people reading it with a critical eye right now. And kind of related to that, I think another important thing is when people do start reading your work to remember that it's all subjective, that just because your critique partner hated the really important element of a character's background story and they think that you should take it out that maybe don't listen to them unless like a bunch of them tell you and yeah and maybe ask why if they're like i don't like that thing with a dog ask them why do they not like it because they don't like dogs so um <laughs> but yeah I, I think getting comfortable with other people reading your work you know unless your goal is to not ever have anyone read your work like maybe you're just a journaler and you don't ever want anyone to ever look at it then that's cool you don't need to force yourself but otherwise get used to it yeah i think that could be a hard thing to kind of you know you get your you get your work set and this is you know this was actually a, a pretty humbling experience so when i first moved down uh, to texas I was like, one of the things that I want to do while I'm starting over is I need to get back into writing. Mm -hmm. And I had never gone to a critique group before. I had no idea that a, a critique group, uh, people expect your work to be readable. Okay. <laughs> it, you know, and it should be something that's just like, yeah, you know, common sense. You know, people should be able to read your writing. I would just write stuff and then I would you know reread it and I would like check some of the stuff and I was like that's good you know and then I'll go and I'll see how people like any kind of things that people want to critique it on and then I never really dawned on me until like the, I went there for the first time and like nobody like everybody put my work down they were like we're not reading this anymore because there's like too many errors Mm. And you need to get all the errors and everything out first before we even can move forward. They're like, you got something good here, but like it needs to be polished enough before. So I, I'm, I guess just piggybacking on that, you know, if you're going to do that, don't treat everyone like they're also going to edit your work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's just not valuable critiquing either. Like, feed it through Grammarly first. <laughs> so yeah, <get> something. <laughs> something. But I think that things like grammatical errors are the stuff that we notice first, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard to look past them at the meat. Mm -hmm. So if there's as few of those as possible, then your critique partner or the editor that you're paying even better, um, they can actually see the bigger issues with what you've written and the issues with characters or pacing or whatever instead of being like i can't handle this he hasn't used a single comma in like 12 pages <laughs> see I'm, I'm guilty of the opposite i'm i'm the run-on sentence guy and they're just like how many commas this is a one this is <laughs> this one sentence is a page you know like i'm not that bad anymore but you know after, after, yeah. after being called out for it for a while it was just like oh i guess I guess I can't do that, you know. <laughs> I my my like big uh overused punctuation, I guess, is I really love the EM dashes. And Cody at Timber Coast <laughs> sent me back um a copy of uh one of my stories that they were critiquing for me, and they had highlighted all of the EM dashes. And then on one of them, they left a comment in the document where they had rewritten the song um, Paradise City, but it was take me down to EM dash city. 
<laughs> they like did a significant portion of the song and so now whenever i'm writing if i do too many em dashes my brain's like take me now to em dash. okay no no take them out take them out <laughs> i kind of like cut these in half uh, it's effective so is there anything uh before we part ways today that you want to plug you know like where can we find you what kind of things are you looking forward to in the future and um, when could people pick up your new book yeah so mousetrap comes out on january 3rd um, if you're listening to this before january 3rd um, it's up for pre-order right now um, and then after january 3rd you can get it everywhere so that book is called Mousetrap, and it is about a supernatural entity haunting a family in Astoria, Oregon. And it's kind of a slower burn, so just a heads up. <laughs> but uh, if you want to find more about me or my writing, you can go to my website at corinlaranaga.com, but that's really hard to remember and spell. So you could also jump straight to my blog at thewordynerd.com. Um, and I'm halfway on social media i'm real real bad at it <laughs> like i have an instagram that i never check yeah i i would love to connect with people if you have any questions about the writing organizations that i'm part of definitely reach out i'd love to chat about that and if i could just maybe plug the quills conference here in utah in august quills conference or league of utah writers.org and um check that out because it's amazing it is such a good value so all right, Corinne. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, I know, like you said, you know, it's it's you're not on social media too much. I'm glad I was able to, to catch you on there. Yeah, thank you so much <laughs> for reaching out. I had a really you're good welcome. time. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So by the by the time that this episode is out, the book Mousetrap will be available. So go awesome. ahead on over to Timber Ghost Press or wherever they're selling the book and pick up a copy. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, especially for those people who do like slow burns. The the, the build up to the end, I, I believe the payoff is worth it. So go ahead, check it out. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Thanks so much. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Generic Podcast. This one was a lot of fun. Uh, Curran has a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge to share with everyone. So as she said in the, the episode, feel free to reach out to her on social media, ask her some questions if you have any, uh, and check out her writing. She's got quite a bit of it, so if her writing is up your alley, then you have quite a, a little library to go through. Again, the generic podcast has been opened up for donations, so... If you want to chip into the future of this show, go on over to anchor.fm slash generic and uh, drop a couple bucks. Why not? As always, I'll leave all the links down in the description for this week's episode. And until next time, y'all keep being the amazing people y'all are.